Well, good morning. Uh, please find Second Thessalonians in your Bible. Maybe hard to find. Tiny little letter. Feel sorry for you. Maybe never even heard a sermon from it, right? Second Thessalonians chapter one. Again, for our visitors, we've been looking past few weeks at First Thessalonians, moving into the second letter this morning. So a few years ago, uh, while Karen was on a writing project in South Asia, she met a young man named Peter. Uh, his people had been forced out of their home country, and he's basically grown up in a refugee camp in another country. His, his, he comes from a Muslim, Islamic people group, but he and his family are followers of Christ, and they have suffered greatly for this. Uh, we still hear regularly from him. I get WhatsApp messages from him almost daily where there are regular reports of arrests and beatings. Some have been killed, a little place they were meeting. He started a church in the refugee camp, and uh, that has been destroyed multiple times. And I struggle to know, how do I encourage this brother? He's so far away. Uh, his faith just seems solid. He's resolved to follow Christ, and yet it is hard. I just sense his pain and sorrow and anguish. And it's hard, right? And it, and it seems remote, right? We're here in Central Europe, and here's someone you know, five time zones away. How do we encourage someone like that? But the reality is it's, it's closer than that, right? You know people, perhaps some of you uh, have suffered. We suffer not only for our faith, but also the, just the afflictions of a broken world. Um, and it is what Jesus taught us to expect, right? If, as we read in Acts 17, you know, Paul and Silas and Timothy preached a suffering Messiah, and the people who followed him suffered, and we stand in a long line of sufferers. But it's not just suffering for the faith, it is suffering because of brokenness in our own hearts and in the world. And so, you know, we need a well-placed hope, and it is precisely that, the well-placed hope that is in short supply. But I believe that's exactly what our text speaks to us about today in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. Um, this second letter, like the first, was written by Paul and Silas and Timothy. You'll recall that after they had been forced out, Acts 17, then uh, Paul sent Timothy to see how they were doing. Timothy returned to Paul, said they're doing well, their faith is strong. So Paul wrote the first letter. That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. Um, so it seems Timothy took the first letter to Thessalonica, uh, showed that to them, left that with them. They're looking at that. And Paul, Timothy also observes what else is going on. So he comes back to Paul with an update. And, and so now Paul and Silas and Timothy sit down and they write uh, the second letter. No mention of a courier, no mention from someone from Thessalonica coming. So Timothy must have done this. So Timothy, uh, this is nearly 500 kilometers now that <laughs> Timothy is going back and forth. And I, uh, I look at that and I just thank God for email, you know. <laughs> I wonder if Timothy said, like, Silas, I think it's maybe your turn to, you know, take the letter this time. I don't know. But um, still, however it happened, by whichever hand, uh, we thank God for all of this, that we can look at this today. It is a longer passage. We'll I plan to look at all of chapter 1, so we'll, we'll read a bit by bit as we go through it. So Paul reminds them in the first couple of verses, just he, he starts by reminding them of their privileges that are theirs and that are also ours as a church in Christ. So, first verse, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, they are a church. Uh, the word church means a called assembly. So, that's the, it could be any assembly, but the purpose of the assembly was determined by the one who calls it together. And we are the assembly of the Lazaruses. Eliezer, as you began, it's like we are the... Uh, 
Lazarus is the Lazarovi, uh, how would you say it? <laughs> but we are the assembly of those who have been called from death to life and in fellowship with Jesus. That's who we are. And that is why we gather. We are not gathered for ourselves, though we benefit. We are gathered primarily to honor Jesus who has died and risen and has given us forgiveness, freedom, reconciliation with God and life. So that is who we are. And they are the church of the Thessalonians. This was a real group of people in a real place at a real time. Uh, we're a different people at a different place, different time, but same pains and aches and challenges. Uh, and then they are in God the Father and in Christ. So this, this phrase, in Christ, is just incredibly profound and meaningful because it tells us that we are in this intimate relationship with God through Christ. He is in us and we are in Him. There is no closer relationship than that which we have with Christ. But it also reminds us that we participate in the life of God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is existence, this relationship of life and love and glory and joy. We, we join that. We join that, that dance, as some have called it. We're brought into that relationship, and it's, it is a life-transforming thing to be a part of. Now, you know, he says Father and Son. I've mentioned the Spirit just to ease your minds. Uh, you may wonder why the Spirit isn't mentioned here. He often is. Uh, just notice, know this, wherever Jesus is mentioned, that reflects the work of the Spirit, because what the Spirit does is make Jesus preeminent. So don't let that bother you, okay? Glad I settled that. Answered a question you weren't asking. So that's what I do. Uh, then he says in the second verse that grace is theirs, and it is ours, the grace of God. This is the unmerited favor of God that he has shown us in Christ that forgives, that brings us to life, brings us into relationship, that enables us to obey the Lord and follow him. And peace is theirs, and it is ours. Paul has in mind not just a cure for anxiety, but the idea of, of shalom, this well-being and health and prosperity and, and, and indeed peace. It is theirs. So friends, look, don't forget, when you wake up in the morning, before you open your eyes, before you drink that first cup of tea or coffee, before you open your mouth to pray, God has already said yes to reconciliation, to grace, to peace, to intimacy with Him. He has already said yes to those things. So approach Him, go to Him with confidence and with joy and with worship. So then, next couple of verses, Paul expresses his gratitude to God for His grace at work in their lives. In verse 3, he says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So it's like he can't help but thank God. To not thank God in this situation, when he thinks about them, it, just, it would be wrong. He feels compelled to do it. And he's thankful because their faith is growing more and more. If you'll recall from when our time in the first letter, he was very concerned about their faith. That's why he sent Timothy. He mentions it many times in the letter. Um, and he was concerned because they were new converts and they were suffering. They were being persecuted terribly. So he was deeply concerned about their faith. That becomes a central focus. And so he sends Timothy to find out. He's overjoyed. Remember in the first letter, he's overjoyed that they have, have stood firm in their faith. Um, and he rejoices now. He's overjoyed now that their faith is still growing. It is still increasing. And he's also grateful that their love for one another is increasing. Again, they're, 
They're suffering, they're being persecuted. So family and friends, everything where they have found identity and, and meaning, all of that is lost now. Families have disowned them, kicked out of homes. But what they have discovered is a deeper bond, a bond deeper than family through with those who know Christ, a, a love that, that uh, surpasses knowledge. And so in the first letter, the end of chapter three, he prayed that their love would increase. And in the second letter, God has answered their prayer and their love has indeed increased. I'm sorry for the technical difficulties. This is not a trick. I didn't practice this. You'll be surprised to know. Sounds still okay? We're good? Okay. Um, so, um, so he's grateful for their, that their faith is growing, that their love is increasing. And oftentimes when we hear faith and love, we also hear the, the third word hope. It was many times in the first letter. So he doesn't mention hope explicitly, but he mentions steadfastness and perseverance. And those things are the fruit of hope. So it's there. So he's so encouraged by their faith and their hope and their steadfastness in the face of persecution. He can't help but thank God. And he can't help but boast about them to the churches where he is. By this point, Paul and Silas and Timothy are probably at Corinth, so in Greece. And he is speaking to those churches there and saying, you won't believe what God has done in the life of the Thessalonians, how, how they have suffered and yet they've, they've uh, stayed true, stood firm in their faith. And that is an encouragement, I think, to the Thessalonians to know that Paul sees them as an example. But they do face some challenges. The first one Paul deals with is suffering. That's the theme of chapter 1. And it is evidently intensified since the first letter. And in chapter 2, which God willing we'll look at next week, we learn that the Thessalonians have been upset or shaken by a message that has come to them in Paul's name saying the day of the Lord has already happened. Well, they know from what Paul had said before that when the day of the Lord comes, that's Jesus bringing judgment on his enemies and deliverance for his people. So if the day of the Lord has come, why are we still suffering? I think that was a big question. I think that's why he begins with this in chapter one, not, not only for the, the theme itself, the importance of it, but I think he's building toward what we'll see, God willing, next week and what you can throw caution to the wind and look at this afternoon if you want. Um, but I think he's, that's where he's taken. He's letting them know the day of the Lord has not yet come. It is coming and nobody's going to miss it. So it is unmistakable. So in the rest of this chapter, what he is doing is giving hope to them as they suffer. And this gives hope to us as we suffer, whether we are suffering persecution for following Christ or whether we are suffering from our own brokenness or the brokenness of the world around us. There is hope. If you are suffering today, if you are hurting, there is hope for you. There's hope for you in Christ. And there's hope nowhere else. And we're tempted to put hope in other places, but Jesus is the only sure hope. So I think there's three reasons, three sources of hope that we see in uh, these verses. So we'll look at those in verse five. We see that we have hope because suffering has a purpose. There is a reason for suffering. There is something behind it. So he says in verse five, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So all this goes back to their perseverance and faith in the face of their persecutions, okay? So he's not saying the persecution is the big sign. It is the fact that you are standing firm. That is a sign of God's justice. But it also looks forward to the rest of what he says when he, he is saying, when he talks about how the persecutors are acting differently and also their destinies are radically different as will be evident in that day. He says, 
And he points them to uh, one purpose of their suffering. He says, as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Now, he is not saying that they are earning their salvation by their suffering. Okay? He is what he, um, we know from the rest of Scripture, clearly, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, to those who actually do not deserve it, who deserve the opposite. So there is no way it is that salvation is something we can earn or be worthy of in that sense. But he does mean that their, their faith, which is the only way you can come to know God, the only way you can enter the kingdom of God, their faith is actually proven genuine by their endurance. Like Peter said in his letter to another suffering church, he said these, and by this he means trials, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so we're not earning salvation, but what happens is hard times, affliction, suffering, persecution, all of those things, they test our faith and they, they prove our faith. They prove the genuineness of our faith, show us maybe areas where our faith is weak, areas where we could grow. But that is the, the value, that is one purpose of suffering. So what it, what it does is it, it, um, it removes the things that we might normally place our hope and trust in, whether it's wealth or control, power over people or relationships or whatever it might be, so that our faith and our hope are in Christ. So that is what he's after. It is so important, just where our faith is. It is... That is it. You know, every time Jesus was amazed in the Gospels, it had to do with either someone's faith or someone's unbelief. It, it is critical. I mean, and you know, Jesus, he's hard to amaze, right? I mean, created the world. And yet, <laughs> he is amazed either at faith or at unbelief. So, amaze Jesus this week with your trust. So, uh, second reason we have hope is because Jesus will bring justice. This is in verses uh, 6 to 9. He describes it, well, he mentions the day of the Lord. We've talked about this a couple of times before, that day when, when Jesus will come, he will judge the world, he will deliver his people. He describes this genuinely, genuinely, I'm sorry, generally in verses 6 and 7. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. So this day means justice. It will be the great reversal of the injustice of persecution. And Jesus will pay back in kind. Uh, the, the words in the original language are the same. Affliction to you who are afflicted. I mean, sorry, affliction to those who afflict you. Okay. And then relief to you who are afflicted. And us. Notice Paul includes himself in that. It reminds us that we do not suffer alone. We stand in a long line of sufferers that began with Cain and continues through Jesus and tens of thousands since. So continuing in verse 7, Paul explains that this day means two very different things for those who know Christ and those who do not. For both groups, he talks about the when, the who, and the what. So let's look, verses 7 and 9 what the day of the Lord means for the unbeliever. So let's look at the when. He says, the latter part of verse 7, this will happen when 
the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So when he's revealed, so the world basically ignores the reality of judgment. We spend, the world spend most of its time sort of anesthetizing itself from, from uh, the voice of conscience and the, the reality of this inner, even this inner sense of accountability we have. And yet it will be clear in that day, there is a judge and we will answer to him. Paul's drawing from Isaiah with a lot of his word pictures here and in every one of those contexts, it is judgment. It is honestly, it's terrifying, right? He says the Lord Jesus will, so he will be revealed. There will be a surprise, not to us, but to the world. He will be revealed from heaven. We've read in Acts 1, Jesus ascended into heaven and the angel there announces that he will return in the same way. So he will return from there as our judge. He will be with his powerful angels, tens of thousands, at least more. And these will administer the justice that Jesus, the judge, pronounces. He will descend in flaming fire. Fire is often a symbol for God's presence. You think of Mount Sinai, this terrifying fire as, as God descended on the mountain to make his covenant with Israel. Think of the burning bush. So it's often a symbol of his presence. And then, so there's the when, that day when Jesus appears as our judge. But then we see the who, we see who will receive justice. He says in verse eight, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, why don't these folks know God? Is it because they failed to do some ritual? Is it because their bad deeds outweighed their good deeds? Were they just not good enough, not nice enough, not generous enough? That is actually not it. The reason they do not know God is in verse eight. They did not obey the gospel. That is, they said no to Jesus. That's it, okay? They refused this offer of reconciliation that Christ offers to us, forgiveness, and freedom, and life. They have said no to that. That is the offer that comes in the gospel that says, it is not about how good you are. It is what, what the gospel says is put your hope in Christ and you will be forgiven. All your unworthiness, all your undeservedness, it is forgiven. Like, uh, like a Mastona read in, from Isaiah 54 earlier, you, those things are behind you. They're gone. And you refuse that. It's like someone sitting in their house and they hear their house is on fire. And they're warned. They're in danger of perishing. And they think, well, I mean, they see the door. They see the way out. And they think, well, you know, eh, I'll just stay. I mean, I kind of like the smell of smoke, like to feel warm. Why not? I'll just stay. I think I'm better off here. Right? You see the fallacy in that, right? If the house is burning, you get out. And friends, we are that close to judgment. So we, we have this amazing capacity to delude ourselves that our souls are not in danger. And it is indeed a fallacy. So... We've seen the when, there's the who, those who do not know God, don't obey the gospel. But then the what is in verse 9. He says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So they will experience everlasting justice. That's what this is. This, this is justice. This is not God losing his temper. This is justice. It is a repayment for what they have done with their lives. Now, there's something we need to see here in verse 9 that's not clear in the way it's translated. The preposition 
where it says shut out from, the preposition that's, that's translated from, it can refer to a separation, as in away from, or it can also refer to source. For example, in chapter 1, where he says grace and peace to you from God the Father, it's the same preposition. That is, grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Well, it also means from here in verse 9. See, the word shut out is actually not supported in the, the language of the text. It is grace, it is eternal destruction coming from the presence of the Lord Jesus and his glorious might. See, the destruction comes not from Jesus' absence, but from his presence. Now, let's see this in a couple of other scriptures. Revelation 6, the last book of the Bible, the day of judgment. It says this, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face. And the word face is the same word as presence in, in our text for today. Hide us from the face or the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So they realize judgment has come. They are desperately seeking a place to hide. There is no place. There is no place. Not in the deepest cave, not in the deepest ocean. There is no place to hide from him in that day. Also, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10 uh, talks about those who have have uh, worshipped the beast. And I know that's apocalyptic language. Forgive me, I will not unravel that mystery today. But he says this, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength, or poured, out, poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That's, that's, I find that very sobering. Now, Jesus isn't embarrassed about this. He's not, uh, doesn't seem reluctant, offended, scared. This is justice. Now, sometimes scripture does describe hell or this final judgment as a separation. There is, Jesus says there will come that day when he will say to some people, depart from me. But often that, that separation is described in terms of separation of lost from saved or a separation from God that is not so much a location as it is relationship. That is, it's more like alienation. You know, I'm, I'm separated from my, my, okay, my mom, you know, 96 years old, awesome lady. Um, you know, we're separated by time zone. She's in the U.S. We're not alienated. We get, I remind her every day we get along quite well. <laughs> I'm just a reminder every day I'm her favorite child. That's basically what I do. You know, forget my sisters that to take care of her every day, the, you know, the... The son is halfway around the world. He's the faith. So, sorry. little insight into my family. That's okay. You'll live. But coming back to this, this is judgment. And the emphasis here is not separation. It is actually destruction coming from the presence of Jesus. It is like the Old Testament when it says, no man can see me and live. Is the, the thought, see, the thought of separation from God well, at first, it may mean nothing to you because God may be irrelevant. Like, don't really know who he is, don't really care, so, you know, 
What does it mean to be separated from him? Or you may think, oh, finally separated from God and nothing might make you happier because he bothers your conscience. (laughs) You think, finally, I'll be done with that nuisance. That's not how it works. It is not separation from God like that. It is, it is being confronted by the inescapable, ultimate reality of Jesus Christ. Unfiltered, undiluted, uninterrupted, forever. No end and no escape. That's what that day and forever after that will be like for those who do not know Christ. It is what that day means for you if you do not know Christ. It is sobering. I mean, I have people that I know and love who are without Christ. And I have shared with them and pray for them. And here we are. Still, they are without Christ. And so, there's a part of me that longs for this day to come and there's a part of me that, that prays The Lord will wait that they might come to repentance. Um, It is sobering and it should move us to pray. If you do not know Christ, it should move you to turn to him and look to him immediately, even in this moment. But for those we know who are without Christ, friends, we we need to pray. God is disposed to save. He hears prayer. He answers. So let's give ourselves a new, you know, I think I shared a few months ago, a friend of mine, um, his mother came to Christ. He had been praying for her for like 40 years. She came to Christ and died a month later. And, you know, I had just sort of let some of that go. I just think, oh, it'll never happen. So that just hearing that story encouraged me to resume praying for some of my family, relatives, others that I know and love who are without Christ. So, friends, let's give ourselves to that again. Don't give up in that. God hears and answers prayer. He's compassionate and merciful more than we are. So let's ask him for those we love who do not yet know him. So that's the day of the Lord for those who do not know Christ. It's, it's terrifying. It's sobering even as a believer to think of this day. But for the unbeliever, and I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions, but it should terrify you. It should. But let's look now at the day of the Lord for the believer. And we see this uh, starting at verse 10, and that was sort of picking up mid-sentence there. But again, we see the when, who, and what. So in verse 10, on the day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. So the when, it is on the day when he comes. And just notice how differently this is described. This is the same day he is revealed to an unbelieving world that rejects and denies him. He is welcomed and glorified by his people. It's not a revelation to us because we know he's coming. And we know him now. And we are in him now and he is in us. And we expect him to come. And we look forward to that day. We see the who. Who rejoices in this day? All who have believed. And again, what is the difference? It is not that that believers do better, do more, live better, more generous, more ethical. The difference is they have believed. That is it. The only difference. They have put their hope in Christ. They heard the gospel. They acknowledged their sin. They turned to Jesus. That is all it takes. That is all it took for them. That is all it takes for any of you 
who are here today watching online in the sound of my voice, that is all it takes. Repent, turn from your sin, believe in Christ. He, he offers forgiveness and freedom and life to you even today. But now let's see what this judgment means, that this day of the Lord means for us as believers. Um, it's also in verse 10, it says, He will be glorified in His holy people. So we've talked about what holy means. It means set apart. So we, it is in this people that He has set apart for Himself. He, is, he will be with us in a way He is not with the world. He is with us relationally. He is together. He is honored by us. He's glorified us. You know, we read, as I mentioned a moment ago, we read in the Old Testament several times, it says, no, man, no person can see God and live. Those days will be gone. We will see Him. We will see the King in His beauty. And how we long for that day. And we will marvel at Him. We'll be amazed. We'll admire Jesus. We'll marvel at Him. Be captivated by Him. We'll see, see those scars. And I imagine that sometimes. I, I don't know if you do this. I try to picture him. I try to picture that day. And I, and I see those scars. And I, I imagine grasping the reality of the magnitude of what it cost him for me to be there. And I just think, oh, Lord, you, you know, I don't belong here. <laughs> but instead, he... He welcomes us. He receives us. He did not flinch at the price he paid for us. He paid it gladly for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, right? So he, he bears the shame, but he despises it. He, he counts it as of nothing. That is what we will see. It, it is so. Uh, it is staggering. It really is. We will marvel at him. We will marvel at him. Be captivated by him. I find myself too often captivated by the things of this age, but that day will come when those things will fade from view, not only emotionally and figuratively, but, but really. And I think he is, in some way, all we will see. And let me add, it's, it's okay to go ahead and marvel at Jesus now and be captivated by him. Uh, again, to quote uh, Peter in his first letter, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 of his letter, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So it's okay to marvel at Jesus now. Hopefully it will only be a change of degree. Not a massive change. Finally, we see that we have hope because God is at work in us in the last two verses. He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. There's, there's faith again. So this is his prayer. It's constant prayer for them. Notice he's not praying that their suffering will end. He does pray that, knowing that we live in a fallen, broken world, that suffering is going to continue. It's going to happen, whether it's persecution, 
or broader affliction, brokenness in whatever form. So his prayer is that in whatever we suffer, our faith will be proven genuine, that our faith will grow, that it will deepen, be refined, more and more focused on Christ. And he prays that God will fulfill every desire for good, every work of faith by his power. So even now, he, I think what he's saying is, is even though we suffer, our focus is not on what we suffer or what we lose, but it's on Christ. It is not on getting revenge on our persecutors. It's on Christ, on doing good, even for those who mistreat us because of Jesus. And the result of this is glory. Jesus is glorified when he comes for us now and then, right? We'll be glorified with him because we are in him, been waiting for him. And all of this is by the grace of God. And so he ends like he began with the grace of God. So friends, if you're suffering, take heart. It is not for no reason. God is using this to show your faith, the genuineness of it, the need for it. So know that he will bring every wrong to justice one day. And for the pain that we feel in our hearts today, yes, we, we lament and we cry to God and we cry for his return. We're eager to see him. Sometimes because we love him, sometimes because there is just so much pain and brokenness. We see it even in ourselves. And if you're here today without Christ, you need to know that the day will come when you will stand before him. You'll be confronted with the ultimate reality of who he is. But you need to know that he suffered the justice that you and I deserve. He rose again, conquered death, offers you today forgiveness, freedom, life in his name as a gift. So we plead with you today, acknowledge your sin to him, turn to him, put your hope in him. Man, woman, boy, girl, rich, poor, slave, free, whatever your ethnic, spiritual, economic background, look to Jesus. Whoever, wherever you are, look to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are coming. We thank you for the hope that you give us when we suffer. We thank you that you have a purpose in these things and that we are not alone. So I pray for my friends, pray especially for those who are suffering affliction today that they will sense your presence and your goodness. That they are not abandoned by you but you are sustaining them through this and that they will be able to look back and see that you came through for them, that you did not abandon them in those hard times. And for our friends here today who do not yet know you, we pray that, that today might be the day that they would understand their sin, that they would understand who you are, that they would look to you and be saved. We commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.